a popular popular podcast do not be afraid hello everyone welcome in grab a seat if you want to know what the show is and how it will actually work well check out tomorrow's episode for today first happy solemnity of saints peter and paul this feast in honor of well saints peter and paul is very widely celebrated first and most obviously by catholics who hold peter and paul as the co-martyred founders of the Church of Rome, but also by the Orthodox, as well as the more liturgically inclined among other Christians. Much less famously, this solemnity is also my favorite day for launching podcasts, as it was three years ago today that I officially christened the Popular History Podcast, a show that looks at history through Pope-colored glasses, one solemnity at a time. That's popular with an E, for the Pope pun. Today's new arrival is a daily show, which is a pretty unhinged plan for a hobbyist, but hey, podcasting has been a blast these last few years, and I'm looking forward to many years to come. There is so much out there for me to explore as a Catholic history nerd, and anyone who wants to join me is welcome. Speaking of people willing to join me, it's high time I introduce the plan for today, along with my very special guest. Folks, Today will be an overview of some of the earliest tracings and controversies of the Sea of Rome, early enough that they fall within Gary Stevens' framework for Season 3, and I'm very happy to have the best independent biblical history podcaster around joining me today. G'day, Greg. I'm glad to be here, and I love being called the best independent biblical podcaster. Oh, thank you. I thought you might like that. I was like, I don't want to put in too many qualifiers, but frankly, it's true. I don't, I don't think it's even close. Well, that's, that's very kind of you. That's very, 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 very kind of you. And it's a pity people would, are only hearing you now after eight years of me doing the show. <laughs> well, oh. from what I hear, you're not planning to disappear completely, so at least there's that. Um, but yes, I wish I could have been uh, singing your praise earlier. And I was to an extent, but not uh, not with my own uh, little podium here. Well, it's yeah, good to be here. So let's have some fun with Peter and Clement. Yes, yes. Or even Peter through Clement, depending on how we want to look at it. Or is there any connection between Peter and Clement? We will talk about that. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good question. <laughs> All right. But first, I think we want to take a look in the, at Peter and Paul, just given... The uh, mm. day of release will be their uh, their co-feast, because obviously they were best buddies, um, as you know, with uh, yeah. Peter, of course, being the uh, the first chair, as it were. But uh, Paul's, Paul's a great guy, and Paul did important things too, but Peter's the main one, um, as we know. So that's, uh, of course, Catholic tradition there, shining through, always first on the list of apostles. Um, Paul calls himself an apostle, but where's he getting that from? So... Sure, Paul wrote, you know, most of the New Testament, or at least half of it, but really it's all about Peter, isn't it, Gary? Oh, now I come from an Anglican tradition. Anglican, <laughs> yes, probably the least harmful denomination of Christianity. It's tea and crumpets with the Anglicans. <laughs> and, well, I can't say we don't like Peter, but he's not a really big deal. It's all that Pope thing that, that, you know, Henry VIII tried to get away from. 
for various <laughs> for various like bitterness reasons. I, I was just thinking about it. In the Anglican tradition, yep, Peter is the chief disciple. Mm-hmm. But I, I think no, Paul would, would far outstrip him in um uh, importance, um, the way you think about the whole New Testament. I mean, Peter's got, what, two crappy letters? Paul's got lots and lots of them. So, yeah, that's a, that's a Catholic perspective coming through. Well, and to be fair to the Catholic perspective, they don't actually downplay Paul as much as I did typically. Like I said, this is the co-feast. They do put Peter first. Um, but, you know, for St. Peter's Basilica, there's also St. Paul's outside the walls, um, where allegedly St. Paul is buried, just like allegedly St. Peter is buried at St. Peter's, which, of course, we know he is. Right, Gary? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. 100%. <laughs> All right, I'll hold you to that. <laughs> yeah. Look, I'll tell you what the Catholics do brilliantly. Churches. Woo! Anglicans do brick and timber churches. For, I mean, if you want pomp and glamour and circumstance and grandeur, you go to a Catholic church. You steal it from the Catholics. Yeah, you steal it from the Catholics. <laughs> and the popes are a lot more fun than the archbishops of Canterbury. No, yeah, I would not do multiple podcasts uh, centered around the archbishops of Canterbury. No offense to any of them. No, but they're all such non-entities, aren't they? Well, that's that's the way it goes. Yeah, but the popes, I mean, everyone knows who the pope is. Yes. Well, and, and honestly, I think that's part of why there's not as much of an active drive to downplay Paul, because, I mean, you know, who's Paul's successor? You know, what's the see of Paul? That's, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, I'll <laughs> grant you that. I'll, I'll grant you that. But, I mean, uh, if you, I mean, Paul is a theologian. You don't hear Peter saying much theology in anything that he writes or does. No, no. It's more of the uh, pastoral end of things, I think, is the euphemism that they like to use. Uh, yes, and he certainly gets a lot more time in the movies, doesn't he? I would say so. <laughs> yes. In fact, I think there's been, just recently, a film about Paul, but that would have to be a first. Yeah. Yeah, I, you have to go out of your way for it, um, at least, you, you know, just with where we're starting from. Yeah. Now, Peter is definitely the star in that sense. In fact, I wonder how many Christians would actually know much about Paul just thinking about it i mean i'm from the united states right so there is a fair amount of uh paul on display within sort of the more um evangelical um angles of uh, protestantism so there's certainly an appreciation for paul there yeah that's just what i'm thinking yeah and that's i wonder was that the connection for the movie it always feels like it's sort of like one of those like specific angle movies but i guess that's anything about an apostle is going to be like that disciple is greek for student and apostle is ambassador the advantage that you bring and which you always bring consistently and i appreciate that is you actually know greek um you know reasonably well or at least you know how to you know use the uh, concordances as a stretcher as i learned to do to get by my greek that's it that's what i do i know how to (laughs) how to use strong's greek to find out the Greek words behind the English translation, etc., etc. Yes, although really the stretcher analogy came into play for me with Hebrew. I worked harder in that class than any other and got the lowest grade, um, but I passed. <laughs> okay, so 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 you've got Greek and Hebrew. I would not go so far as to say I have either of them, um, <laughs> but I know how to look up the words and I recognize some of the words 
um, including some of the ones that we'll talk about if we have time. <laughs> okay. So I know what the letters are. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, well, you've got me on Hebrew. I don't know. I know Aleph. That's about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. The Greek I, I always liked how they mold the vowels around the uh, consonants. That's fantastic. <laughs> You'd think a language would invent vowels, wouldn't you? You would you would think so. It'd be so much easier than the various weird little annotations and, and clicks and things that Hebrew has to have to replace them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you heard the story of why they have that little, uh, um, I guess, superscript or whatever you would call it? No. And I will emphasize that this is a story. Okay. I do not have academic rigor on this, but basically... Languages don't usually start out with vowels. That's just how languages go. And yeah. so they were, when they were writing the uh, Torah and the sacred texts, they had them in without vowels. And then they did find the utility of vowels, but they did not want to disrupt the text itself. They didn't Ooh. want to be modifying it. They wanted to be respectful towards it. Yeah. So they literally danced around it with the vowels. No, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, as far as I know, Greek is the very first language to have invented vowels. I'll buy that. Yeah. yeah. At least as far as we know, right? There's usually something oh, oh, yeah, potentially missing. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, there might be the long lost Luwian language, which had vowels, but yeah, who knows? Clever Greeks. All right. So Peter and Paul. Mm. Gary, you're, you're more versed, I will say, in uh, Paul than I am, for sure, because... Okay. I find myself constantly almost avoiding Paul to the extent where I'm very suspicious of what my biases are. And Mm -hmm. I am a Catholic, folks, so I don't know how that plays in. I don't know. But, Gary, I get the sense that you are more comfortable with Paul than I am. And I'm not expecting that to be a ringing endorsement. But I want to know, from your perspective, were Peter and Paul buddies? No. No, 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 no. No. Oh, but that's what I heard. Oh, all you have to do is read Paul's letters. He doesn't like... Well, actually, here's here's the classic quote. This is from Paul's letter to the Galatians 2.11. Paul is writing in the first person. Obviously, it's his letter. But when Paul came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, He ate with Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. Mm. He was afraid of criticism from these people. So in this letter, Paul calls out Peter for his hypocrisy. And the Mm. general, in Paul's other letters, he is always opposing the, um, what I'd call the Jews for Jesus fans or the Jews for Jesus faction. When, he, when he, he complains to his clubs, oh, you've got these people coming from Jerusalem, but I've already taught you the gospel and the story of Jesus. Don't listen to them. Listen to me. Mm. I mean, Paul is really prickly. There's no doubt about that. I think he'd be a, a so-so friend because as far as Paul's concerned, it's Paul's way or no way. That reminds me of Jerome later on. Obviously, that's a few centuries down the line. I don't know if you've heard any rumors about him. No, I haven't. I, I, I know bits and pieces about him, but I don't know anything about his personality. Traditionally, he was a very grumpy saint. <laughs> okay. He is the classic <laughs> example of why you don't have to be happy to be uh, canonized. Oh, okay. No, I didn't know that at all. 
Oh, yes. He was a curmudgeon. He was a, he was a curmudgeon. <laughs> right. Reportedly. Reportedly. Well, I think Paul is definitely in that category. On the other hand, Paul is fiercely loyal to the clubs he founds, and he loves the people in his clubs. But, gee, you do not want to get on his wrong side. He will whack you big time. No, I did get that impression from his letters. That's true. And I, I have read the incident at Antioch, but, you know, there's always ways to explain these things. And clearly they made up later because they were martyred together in Rome, as we know. Oh, right, Gary? Right? I'm st- you're still with me on that, right? No. Sorry. <laughs> I can't. I can't buy that. I can't buy that, sir. I was going to bind you and drag you along as, as effectively <laughs> as I can, right? <laughs> I think that's the uh, that's the phrase Jesus has that's sometimes uh, given as predicting Peter's martyrdom, right? When you're old, they will take you and bind you and lead you to where you do not wish to go. So I suppose I'm Nero in this scenario. Okay, okay. I'll accept that as a, a reasonable um, interpretation of Jesus' words. But Book of Acts, what does it say about Peter going to Rome? Oh, is that silence I hear? Yeah. <laughs> It says nothing about him going to Rome. He was in Antioch for most of Acts. He was he was doing church stuff there. Well, I'm sure he went he to Rome was. later. But no one. Oh. Based on who? Based on tradition. Of course. <laughs> His successors told me that. Hey, you're talking to an Anglican here. We rejected <laughs> tradition centuries ago. <laughs> you're still Catholic, though, right? Well, hmm, okay. Uh, <laughs> There's a loaded term. There's a load of... Well, I suppose the church is split into high and low. High church looks really Catholic. Really Catholic. Yeah, I'll I'll grant you that. Yeah, and now there's the uh, ordinariate on the Catholic end, which is basically, you know, high church Anglican plus the Pope. Oh, really? The the full spectrum, yes. They set that up a few years ago. Um, Obviously, you know, kind of uh, poaching. Um, But uh, yeah, there was some unhappy faces on that and some happy faces. Basically, they said, you don't have to change anything with your Anglicanism. Just come over here and sign our forms. Do they allow married priests? Uh, They do, um, is my understanding. They've always had a bit of an exemption for if a person who was already a married priest converts to Catholicism, like in another tradition. Oh, yeah. They will sometimes take that track of, we don't want you to have to give up your livelihood. So we'll go ahead and make you a priest in Catholicism because, you know, the Pope can can waive that um, discipline because he's an absolute monarch and it's handy to be an absolute monarch at times, as Henry (laughs) VIII will tell you. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. One other thing I wanted to touch on is, um, of course, um, Peter did baptize the first Gentile, right, Uh, Cornelius? So, I mean, you're telling me that that didn't happen. A lot of scholars, and I'm not saying... I'm one of them because I'm not a scholar. I'm just a buff. (laughs) Me either, for the record. Uh, Argue that that little story was shoehorned into Acts specifically to make uh, Peter the first to go to the Gentiles. But of course, if you look at the story, Peter's pretty reluctant about it, isn't he? Oh, yeah. he's, He's not on board. He has to be commanded and then he's still reluctant. Yeah. And he's still reluctant. I mean, the whole point about the book of Acts is to make Peter look like Paul and Paul look like Peter. I was waiting for Peter to get swallowed by a whale. That's how reluctant he was to preach. (laughs) That would have been a great story. And the whale took him to Italy. There you go. There you go. That's how it happened. It's in the book of Jonah. That's it. It's in the book of Jonah, which predicts Peter's aquatic 
which do we like? <laughs> the palm the, tree was actually an upside down uh, cross or fig tree or whatever Jonah ends up under. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he ends up under it. I think he had the withers. <laughs> Both the centurion story and the story of Peter going to Rome, there's a lot of scholars, none of whom are Catholic, I presume. <laughs> Funny that. Funny that, yeah. Say that these things didn't happen and they were there to counterbalance Paul's obvious fact that he did go to Italy. Not mm-hmm. really sure what he did there. Um, <laughs> yeah, to counterbalance Paul. I will say, for what it's worth, I do not fit the scholar category, um, but I am a Catholic. Um, and I actually would agree with you through looking at it on balance, at uh, certainly at the Cornelius event not being the first conversion of a Gentile, mm. depending on how you define these things, right? Yep. But uh, it just seems very unlikely to me um, that that would have been something that was coming from the top, because any way you slice it, things were trending in that direction already, and it doesn't usually start at the top, especially not usually in that miraculous way, right? Yeah. Um, I do like to go with tradition when I can, um, Mm. when I don't have a particular reason to go against it, and that includes miracles. I'm not a fundamental skeptic, but when I'm thinking on balance, is it most likely that, you know, everyone held off on converting Gentiles, including St. Paul, until Peter had this dream, because I think the dream of Peter was after Paul's conversion by a few years. Um, uh, yeah. Or did things start to get more decentralized and people were doing their own things, um, and then they retconned in this uh, for Peter? I mean, I think it's unlikely any of the disciples had any interest in the Gentiles, because if you look at the Gospel, mm-hmm. the story of Jesus in the Gospels, I think Jesus meets maybe two Gentiles, Mm. And one of them is a Samaritan who is a sort of a, well, the Samaritans would say, oh, yeah, we're Jews. But the Jews at the time, the Judeans would have said, no, the Samaritans aren't Jews. Right. And, that, and, and that's it. I mean, none of the other disciples, there's just no interest in a Gentile context in the Gospels that, that I can recall. Yeah. And funny you should mention the Samaritans because mm. it was a Samaritan conversion um, scenario that got me thinking. Um, in terms of um, Philip, the deacon. Oh, yes. <laughs> Before, I think it's Acts 10 that we have uh, Cornelius's conversion. Mm. It's Acts 8 or so that Philip, the deacon, is running around Samaria just converting willy-nilly. Um, so it certainly seems like there wasn't exactly a harsh clamp down on uh, Gentile versus Jew. I mean, the world's ending, so go ahead and spread the word. And even at the end of Acts, or at the, at the end of Luke, rather, um, and it pops up in a few other Gospels. There's the uh, the Great Commission, um, where he says, go and baptize all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And obviously I'm throwing in the Catholic version of that. I believe the Bible structure itself is pretty much the same there because they make a big point of that. It's I've yeah. heard someone say it's really easy to give someone a valid baptism because the words are literally in the Bible. Just do that and use yeah. water. It's okay. <laughs> That's a point. Yes, yeah, the, there is the Great Commission. But you must admit the disciples took their time about going to the nations. I mean, you would, wouldn't you? I mean, see how that ended up? <laughs> well, yeah. And, and I suppose, I mean, in Paul's letters, Paul always, whenever he goes to a new town, he always preaches to the Jews first, invariably mm-hmm. gets rebuffed, then he goes to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. 
And he, he seems to get along a lot better with the pagans than he does with his fellow countrymen. Typical Paul. <laughs> yeah, there is there is that. I mean, you know, he, the fact that he converted from being one of very few people that we could say was a Pharisee. Is that is that correct in your recollection that he self-identifies? Yes, he does. And you're absolutely right. There are very, very, very few people who do self-identify as Pharisees. It's one of the little mysteries of the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. Might be, I think Josephus might have done. I don't remember. But yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, oh, Josephus, bloody Josephus. Yeah, jo- <laughs> Josephus. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah. And I think the only other, I mean, Pharisees are referred to generically, but I think the only other person in the New Testament who, identi- who is called specifically a Pharisee is Gamaliel, mm. Mm. Um, who was a famous well, he would become, was, is, well, whatever, a famous Jewish rabbi. And he, and he must have been so well known that the early Christians roped him in as supporting the movement. He gets a very favorable write-up, yeah. Yes, he does, doesn't he? For someone who isn't explicitly in, you know, the way, um, and I guess that's a phrase that I should use, yeah. in oh. Christianity, such as it was. I suppose it was, it was the equivalent of a celebrity endorsement, wasn't it? Yeah, and there was one other aspect of, you know, these um, Jewish priests converting that I, yeah. I, that was a fascinating little verse. I know when we were mm. talking before mm. we got rolling, um, Acts chapter 6, verse 7, yeah. um, you know, we just had the deacons commissioned and they're off on their way to do their diaconos thing, mm. um, whatever that shapes out to be. And I this is where I appreciate you having the clarity on the terms because... I do usually, and I'm, I'm sure you do too, I usually do read in translation, um, but oh, yeah. I'm often lazy when it comes to checking what the actual term is unless I'm genuinely wondering. <laughs> right. um, and so if tradition tells me that the seven are deacons, then I just take it that they're, you know, wearing the one stripe and not the two stripes and everything that a deacon means today, which obviously that wasn't the case. Yeah. But uh, there's a development historically of these different types of church offices. Hmm. Um, and the one that's just really surprisingly hard to pin down um, is the priesthood. So I just, I was fascinated with that, that line in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, where yep. you've got a bunch of Jewish priests are converting over to Christianity at that point. And then it says nothing else about them. They just disappear. And, you know, you see the Jewish priesthood referenced in Hebrews and other sections but it's not as a current thing except for that one little verse do you have any thoughts on what's going on there yeah well i must admit uh, until you pointed it out that verse hadn't struck me uh, but then i read it i mean it's a real throwaway line isn't it a- as you yeah. say it just appears out of nowhere and and goes nowhere i mean apart from that we don't have any mention really of something you could effectively call the priesthood i would hmm. say for a hundred years um like okay there's there's bishops, there's deacons, yeah. or, you know, there's words that kind of generally are taken to mean those things. Yeah. Um, episcopos and presbyteros, um, which there's my level of Greek pronunciation. <laughs> but uh, like, they clearly mean two different things to an extent. Yes. Um, and I was sort of raised with the, oh, the presbyter is uh, referring to priests. Well, it's obviously not that simple. Um, any Any sense on your end of what the difference is? between those words or those roles in the earliest church? 
Yeah, I mean, traditionally it's been taken as a three-level hierarchy, hasn't it? Um, mm-hmm. In English, bishop, priest and deacon. Uh, but no, again, until you mentioned it, I hadn't thought of where does the sacerdotal sacerdotal um, mm. aspect come into it. Yeah, because like the sacerdos, like the obvious, like, you know, this word definitely is referring to the priesthood more or less as we understand it, right? This yep. word means priest. You don't see that until like the 500s. And it just, yeah. all of the, a lot of the scholarly sources mention that episcopos and uh, presbyteros are used basically interchangeably. And that does seem to be something to that. But when you are looking at, like, you know, the Catholic sources, they all just kind of hand wave and they say, oh, presbyteros, that's the priest there. So there you go. Yeah. I mean, the very early sources we have, if you take a look at the Didache, mm-hmm. which is a very early, what do you call it, Christian church manual, yeah, which is yeah. believed to have been written sometime between 75 to 110. So that's, that's maybe, that's pretty early. Really, that's really early. It, it says, it discusses the Eucharist. Yay. Yeah. Yay. Sorry, Catholic over here. Okay. But says nothing about who presides. And it says quite literally, now concerning the Eucharist, give thanks this way. So it's just a general instruction to the congregation. Mm. Now, the Didache does mention bishops and deacons, but it doesn't say anything about sacerdotal functions. It says, appoint, therefore, for yourselves, bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord, men meek and not lovers of money. Oh, well, okay. That didn't quite work out. <laughs> It doesn't mention presbyters, and it doesn't say what the bishops and deacons are meant to do, except it implies that they're organisational roles. Now, if we move on a generation or two to Ignatius, who's another early figure, he Mm. mentions the three-level hierarchy, and he gives a sacerdotal role to deacons expressly, but does not mention bishops and presbyters. And he says, quote, it is necessary also that the deacons, being ministers of the mysteries of Jesus Christ, should in every way please all men. So he explicitly says, it's deacons. Well, my deacon would be very happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah. So I have absolutely no idea where the, where the priestly role evolved and when it became the job of the presbyters. And of course, we all yeah. assume that, yeah, I've got no idea when it happened. Yeah, it doesn't seem to really come from the Jewish priesthood. No, um, not at all. Except that, that that one verse is what I would call the closest thing to a hint of something going on there, but there's just nothing to it. There's no meat on that bone. No. Um, no. Um, <laughs> that's a bit of a pun, really, because the Jewish priests were mainly concerned with uh, making sacrifices, which mm, is mm-hmm. meaty bones, bony meat. <laughs> Uh, and they, yeah. they got the meat and uh, God got the uh, bones, right? Um, yes, <laughs> that's how it worked. I mean, Jewish priests did not have, they didn't, you know, they didn't bless things. They didn't conduct prayers. There was none of that. Mm-hmm. In so certain, it's basically just the word. Yeah, basically, okay, they're in charge of the law, interpreting the law. Mm. But... They didn't conduct. There are no, there are no sacraments, as far as I can tell. Nothing nothing like sacraments in the Christian sense. Nothing mm-hmm, at all. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's interesting the way um, baptism appears to be maybe predating some of Christianity. If anything about John the Baptist is to be believed. Now I don't. Mm-hmm. You know we don't have to go into that. But uh, you're right in terms of. It just seems like they took 
the Jewish priesthood and, you know, um, walled it off, um, mm. placed it all under the high priest, yeah. put a Jesus Christ sticker on uh, <laughs> the high priest. He's there, you know, with the buddy Jesus thumbs up as the high priest. Yeah. And then they went and something happened and now we have priests, but it's different. And Jewish uh, folks no longer have priests, which something else happened there um, yeah. that would be involving the, the temple, which it's fascinating to think what things would be like if that hadn't happened. But, uh, I mean, I guess we should probably talk a little bit about 70 AD and the destruction of the temple. I mean, that played a role, um, I think everyone would argue, in shaping early Christianity and Judaism as well, um, and certainly distinguishing them. And I know you talked about that a fair bit. Any further thoughts or insights you want to offer with regard to that, that whole split? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm just writing an episode about that. <laughs> a whole episode. Oh, okay. Well, tune in. It's it's taking me ages. I've been writing this episode for months now. I mean, for what it's worth, Gary, this is going to be a daily show um, on my end. So I'm actually writing about uh, 40 episodes on that. Not oh. really, but uh, I've got a dozen scheduled on the uh, calling it Among the Gentiles. And then oh, okay. Just, yeah. So, which I think I probably style parodied that from you. So I apologize. <laughs> uh, take it back if I must. But uh, can I use that? Yeah, absolutely, you can use it. Uh, yes, the Great Revolt of 66, which ended up with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, mm -hmm. was obviously shattering to the Jews because the temple was the political and religious pivot of all Judaism including the mm -hmm. diaspora throughout the eastern Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. Jews sent a tithe to the temple. The temple was where God resided, in a big sense. So as you can imagine, getting rid of the temple, huge theological problem. Big, 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 big mm -hmm. problem. From the Christian point of view, I mean, by 66, this is only about, what, 10, 12 years after Paul had died, uh, maybe Peter had died. So this is very recently. Mm-hmm. Very recent after them. And they would still have been very attached to the temple as a concept. And now suddenly it's gone. Oh, yeah. I would have to think they were hoping to win over the temple and have uh, the followers of Jesus in charge of what's going on there. That I, I would imagine it would be somewhat the aspiration, obviously a different emphasis, but hmm. uh, it just seems to me like they would want to have that be incorporated in. That's a very good one. I hadn't thought of that. Yes. Well, I guess probably Paul wouldn't. <laughs> no, but... Yeah, see, that, that's the trick, isn't it? Yeah. The Gentile converts couldn't care less about the temple if they'd ever heard of it at all. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, right from the beginning of Christianity, well, certainly from Paul's time, there is this big split between the Gentile side and the Jewish side. It's shown in, in the letters of Paul that it actually exists. So the destruction of the temple would have affected the Jerusalem Jesus Club, as I call it. Mm-hmm. But it would have been pretty much immaterial to Paul's foundations. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, Paul was dead at the time. I don't know what he would have thought about it. But I, I think he'd make a good case that it, it seems that Christianity became largely Gentile after the destruction of the temple. Although there are some scholars who argue that it may have been Gentile in a sense, but Christianity mainly appealed to Hellenized Jews. Mm. Now, I personally don't uh, take that view. I think it just appeared to plain pagans. But you can make a case that Hellenized Jews took it on. And you could even make the case that after the temple went, 
It could have become very attractive to Hellenized Jews who suddenly lost the pivot of their lives. Mm -hmm. But, well, wait a minute. We still have this hero, this Jewish guy, Jesus. Yes, he's the man to root for now. Yeah, Yeah. Bar Kokhba didn't work out. Oh, (laughs) that was later. Oh, a few generations later, yeah. Yeah, a few. Yeah, that was um, about one thirty. That was a disaster. Oh, that was that was far worse than the Great Revolt against the Romans. The one in in about one thirty, which is uh, sixty years later. I mean, you know, instead of the temple being wiped off the map, Judea is wiped off the map. Yes, the entire little province of Judea was annihilated. Now, I think we should distinguish: the areas of Samaria and Galilee were unaffected. Mm. And as far as we know, it's only little Judea, which was very tired. It was just totally annihilated and probably depopulated. Mm -hmm. And the Jews in Judea sold into slavery. So that was far worse than the Great Revolt. Mm -hmm. And I think a very key indicator comes from dear old Bishop Eusebius, the great chronicler and fabulist, maybe, sometimes. Uh, He's he's the Herodotus of early Christianity, I like to say. Yeah, he's the Herodotus of early Christianity. That's an excellent way to describe it. He says that he went looking through the lists of the bishops of Jerusalem. Mm. Until the Barcosa Revolt, all the names that he found were Hebrew names. After the Barcosa Revolt, they were Greek. So my favorite part of that is when I went to look up this list, because he said, mm. like, you know, he had like 15 or 16 bishops right. with these uh, Hebrew names. Mm. And I was like, oh, wow. I wonder, I, I didn't, I hadn't caught the connection between um, Bar Kokhba mm-hmm. and that change. I knew that the change had happened, but I was like, oh, he's got like 15 names on there. That must have been going on for, you know, a couple hundred years, especially because you're three bishops of Jerusalem in by the time you get to like 120. Mm-hmm. So to fit in the last 12 in uh, the last, I guess, <laughs> getting up to the 130s, yeah. uh, it's clearly there's, even with that just list of bishops and their proposed times, it definitely seems like things are uh, not going smoothly, I would say. Yeah, I, I suppose the implication is a lot of people are getting bumped off in wars and things, isn't it? Things are not going well. Yeah. One thing I wanted to to look at from the other angle, I mean, you know, mm. you would, I would think you'd want to certainly not appear as Jewish to the Romans after all of the uh, the Jewish wars um, and that uh, mm. all that tumult there. And it seems like, at least from what I've seen, they had sometimes a hard time of it because they were initially seen as a a Jewish sect. I mean, from what I saw, it wasn't until Nerva around, you know, 98 that they stopped charging um, Christians the uh, the Fiscus Judaeorum, the, uh, the new tax they had on Jews to replace the temple tax you mentioned earlier. They said, oh, well, there's no more temple, but there's still a tax, and that goes to us. Um, yes. And they were charging that to Christians because they saw Christians basically as Jews until about that 98 time, which I think is, you know, after the destruction of the temple, I think they were very happy to distance themselves in general. Of course, individuals were doing their own thing. But, uh, yeah. Yes, that's right. And Nerva seems to have made that uh, first distinction. And by about, what is it, 110, you have Governor Pliny Mm -hmm. writing to Trajan, and the Roman state clearly differentiates Christians from Jews at that point. But mm-hmm. it, did, it did take them that long, until about the year, say, 100, for them to work it. 
yeah. Have you come across the, uh, I think it's a bit, it's fairly older scholarship at this point, but you know, it's, mm. it's what I was told, right? Going to a fairly traditional uh, Catholic college, mm. um, that the Luke and Acts were basically made as a uh, marketing to the Romans to say like, you know, Hey, here's what Jews are. Here's what Christians are. Christians are Roman friendly. Um, so, okay. you know, be easy on us. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I, ha I haven't heard that, but it's certainly credible, because Luke is really quite um, Gentile friendly, isn't it? Yes, gentle to the Gentiles. Yes, yes, yeah. You have to say that twice to get it right, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but with the power of editing, I will only say it once. Uh, that's true. Oh, don't you love editing? Uh... Oh, not particularly. Um... <laughs> yeah, it's a... I. I suppose if we're going to try to get all the way to Clement, um, we should at some point... You didn't even get Peter to Rome. You're not progressing very well on this uh, this planned course, Gary. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But as far as I'm concerned, Peter disappeared somewhere in Judea at some point. Well, uh, how about Linus? Was Linus in Rome? Who was the second pope, Gary? Oh, well, there's a little bit of contention about that, isn't there now? Uh... Yes, a lot, a lot of bit of contention. Yeah, hang on. I have some. I have some juicy quotes here. So, so I'll just list off some names while you're digging through your library. Um, okay. We've got Linus as a. He's generally the uh, the winner as far as the modern interpretation goes because if you're the Catholic Church, you're going to pick one, right, and go with it. Yeah. And for a very long time, they it seemed like they mostly picked Clement, and uh, eventually, though, um, Irenaeus being some of the, I think. Uh, fair to say he would be the earliest testimony on this actual listing of the bishops of Rome. Right. Um, Irenaeus gives Linus, and then uh, I can't remember if he calls him Cletus or Anacletus or Anacletus, or however I should say that. There's, uh, a, there's a puddle. And Anencletus. <laughs> I call him Anacletus. I mean, I hate, it, I hate it when Greek puts the emphasis on a non-English thing like Anacletus or something. Uh, yeah, no, I call him Anacletus, so I'm glad, to, I'm glad yeah. you do. Uh, and uh, yeah, Irenaeus, who died round about 200. So by the time Irenaeus died, the church had been fairly well established as an international organization. He says that the second, that Linus follows Peter, then comes Anacletus, and after him, in the bronze position, third place, Clement. <laughs> but, 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 Tertullian, and I hope I'm pronouncing it that correctly. That's cool. how I say it, so okay. we'll go with it. Tertullian, excellent. Two out of two wins. Tertullian, who died about 20 years after Irenaeus, so they would have been, they're roughly contemporaries, says Clement was second after Peter. Mm -hmm. So there's a clear mm -hmm. clash of people who lived round about the same time. And now much, much later, Jerome the Grumpy Saint, Jerome the Grumpy. <laughs> yes. Jerome the Grumpy, who died 200 years later uh, than Tertullian and Irenaeus, he says, uh, Clement of whom the Apostle Paul, writing to the Philippians, says, with Clement and others of my fellow workers whose names are written in the Book of Life, the fourth bishop of Rome after Peter, if indeed the second was Linus and the third Anacletus, although most of the Latins think that Clement was second after the Apostle. So Jerome knows that there's two separate traditions. Mm -hmm. It almost seems like an East and West thing. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Although the weird thing is, Jerome himself was a Westerner. 
But mm. in the passage, he refers to the Latins in sort of the third person, as though he's not a Latin. So I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, that's that. I thought that was interesting as well. I mm. mean, maybe he's just referring to them just as an overall class, but it definitely seems to be that he's not identifying with them in general. But also, yeah. I mean, Latin as a as a liturgical language um, started out. It seems in North Africa, like it was it was there before it was in Rome, right? Because the first yeah. The earliest popes were operating in Greek yeah. for the first couple hundred years. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, it's, it is curious um, that the, uh, the Latins, um, apparently at least in Jerome's day, and I don't see any reason not to trust him, at least for mm. reporting his contemporary events, the Latins seem to favor Clement, which does seem to match up with the uh, medieval interpretations. Like I mentioned for a very long time, um, Clement seemed to be winning. I think possibly mm. that was just for Simplicity. If I had to take a guess, I'm going with Linus, right? For my overall okay. narrative and chronology, my mm-hmm. money's on Linus just because I can see why you would erase Linus if you had Clement. I can't see the argument for the other way around. I could see wanting to bump Clement up the list because he's the more famous and then Linus kind of gets overlooked. I mean, uh, Tertullian doesn't even mention Linus, so as far as we know... You know, and Tertullian would fall into the category of the Latins being from North Africa, like yeah. I mentioned. He just says Clement was ordained by Peter. Yeah. Um, no mention of Linus. We don't know if he had any understanding there, if he put Linus later, or if he just didn't have a Linus. Mm. So, Look, I'd agree with you with that about Clement, because Clement had written a famous letter, mm-hmm. which was established pretty early on as one of the earliest documents outside the New Testament. And there are, there are a whole bunch of other... Clementine letters, that, uh, which later popped up out of nowhere. Yeah, but, that's why it's uh, First Clement. Yeah, that's why it's but First really, Clement. <laughs> From but, what we have, only one really seems to be Clement. Yeah, all the rest are fakes. Uh, whereas no one talks about the first letter of Linus, do they? Because we, <laughs> we haven't got one. No, it's just it's just the blanket. Yeah. Okay, where do you want to go now? Uh, well, we, we've, reached, we've reached Clement. Huzzah! Yes. Huzzah. So, obviously, um, I know you'll agree with me here, and I may be doing the same thing I was doing with Peter going to Rome, um, <laughs> yeah. just to put my cards on the table. But clearly, First Clement does make it clear that uh, Rome was the head of the universal church at that time and perceived as such. Because, I mean, you know, you've got John the Evangelist hanging out on Patmos, at least traditionally at about this time. Mm-hmm. And they don't write to John. They write to the more distant uh, Clement over in Rome. So you would agree with all that, right, Gary? Oh, dear me. Catholic wish fulfillment. No. <laughs> they're, they're, no, 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 no. Well, look, sorry, no, no. I'd say it's unlikely. I mean, we know from, okay, Paul's letters, which are written, say, 50, so. Mm. In the letter uh, to the Romans, first he doesn't mention Peter. Funny that, if they were best buddies. And secondly, he seems to write to the Romans as though there are several distinct congregations with different leaders. No indication there's a unified congregation there. Mm, now, we'll circle back to that. Okay. Uh, the trick with Clement is dating. Clement is dated anywhere from 60 to 80. Now, if he's mm. 60, that is shortly after Paul died and before the Great Revolt, mm. if it's 80, the uh, Judean situation has changed totally and the temple is destroyed. Uh, oh, sometimes he's actually dated as late as 100. 
Yeah. I was going to say this, that's a really weird scenario because tradition usually has him about 95, 96, and the scholars pretty much always want to push things back and tradition always wants it with the earlier date. So it's interesting that scholars, scholars are arguing as early as 60 for Clement. Uh, I think some traditionalists do. Okay. They could. There's a lot of different traditions, frankly. Yeah. I'm not allowed to say that as a Catholic, but I will. If Peter is martyred under Nero, which is which is traditionally mm-hmm. about, what, 64, I think? Yeah. Well, uh, so here, here's the thing with that. They say he was martyred in 64 because that was the year of the Great Fire right. um, okay. of Rome. And theoretically, it was a response to that. Mm-hmm. But the problem with that is... If you accept tradition for saying this connection with the Great Fire of Rome and martyred under Nero and in Rome in the first place, Hmm. what you're missing is the feast day today, um, at least as of release, Hmm. is June 29th. The Great Fire of Rome started in like August of 64. So he was pre-gaming if he was being martyred in June of 64. So either we've got the date wrong or we've got the year wrong. So it seems like... When I was looking at this and looking at the Vatican, because the Vatican basically publishes a uh, phone book for all the all the bishops. And if you ever want to know how to email a cardinal, um, <laughs> it's in the uh, Annuario Pontifico, and it's fantastic. Okay. Unfortunately, not available online. Oh, really? No, no. Well, because they got to make their uh, their money with it, right? And I, th- I'm sure bishops get it free, but uh, nerds like you and I have to pay like a hundred euro for it. It's it's steep. Oh, wow. But it's also thick. It's like a four-inch book. Oh. It really is a phone book. That really is the, okay. but, God's phone book. Yes, yes. Where I was going with that is, you know, at the mm. at the front, they basically sort of take the, uh, more or less, the church's current position on these things. You can also, of course, just check the Vatican's website. That part is free. Oh, and okay. just see what yeah. they say. And they do seem to favor the 67 date. Um, just like I mentioned, they are favoring... Um, Linus as the second, but they've also started adding in Clement back again. For a while, he was out as a possible immediate successor to Peter, okay. but he started creeping back in. So it's interesting to see that as well. But they yeah. do seem to prefer 67. I like to think that's for my reasons. Yeah. Now, the early dating of Clement to about 60 arises mm-hmm. from the fact that, okay, if you accept that Peter ordained Clement, well, then he had to yeah. do that bef- before Peter died. So, I, I, I guess that would happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That would happen. So Clement, therefore, would be uh, in, uh, starting from the early 60s. But traditionally, Clement was killed in a great persecution of the Emperor Domitian, which mm-hmm. I think is, uh, is said to have occurred in 96. Yeah, it would have been the 90s. Yeah, the 90s. Well, we don't know which end of the range it is. And I, I think most scholars do accept, say, the, late, the mid to late 90s as Clement's death. But they also believe there was no great persecution under Domitian. There is no, there is no evidence of it. Right. And, there, and, you know, in some cases, it seems like a lot of these things, you'll see positions all over the map. That does seem to be yeah. one of the more popular ones. But, I, you know, I come across folks who will say there were no martyrdoms basically um, anywhere ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To it was just constant martyrdom fest. Now, constant martyrdom <laughs> fest cannot hold up to academic rigor in any way. No, uh, 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 the the history of martyrdom in early Christianity does seem to have been exaggerated, doesn't it? If you have a saint who is traditionally a martyr and the chronology doesn't add up, then it was a local persecution. It wasn't under the emperor. Yeah. It was just a local persecution that we don't have records for apart from the martyrdom. Yeah. Now, I will say, to their credit, the Vatican does seem to respond 
um, you know, and, and sometimes this is controversial within Catholicism itself, hmm. but they do seem to respond to the results, basically, of these academic conversations, and they will quietly remove oh. saints from the martyrology okay. when it's not shown, or, when, you know, when it's when it uh, seems fairly apparent that there's not really much to go on apart from just the tradition. Yeah. And part of that's because when they're adding new saints to the calendar, and, you know, the book can only get so big, you've got to... You've got to sweep up the uh, the dust that's kind of collected at some point, anyways. Yeah. So some of it's just practical, yeah. but yeah. Uh, they will remove martyrs or even just downplay entire saints when their history doesn't appear to hold up. Oh, okay. I mean, I think the Catholic Church is very good responding to modern academic research, which is not something you can say about a lot of Protestant groups who was who was <laughs> who was still trying to work out, you know, about the flood. Yeah, well, and there's that whole range with the evangelicals, and then yep. there's a whole spectrum there. Yes. yes. <laughs> but yes, not not as much biblical literalism um, across the board in uh, Catholicism. No, not at all, from what I can tell. No, that's, that's, that's fair. I mean, part of it is, I think, if you've, you know, this, the other traditions you can lean on, and even if you're willing to part with some of your traditions because they don't hold academic rigor, you're still going to have other traditions to lean on, like, at one point, I was like, oh, hey, I, I'm doing this show, right, Gary? And it's hmm. it's going to cover all the cardinals. And there's a ton of cardinals. And oh, I'm wow. like, huh, yeah, there's there's 4,000. So this is an insane project. Is this 4,000 in all of history? All of history, yes. yes. 4,000? Currently, there's there's 120 who can vote. Like, that's the cap, right. um, at least in theory. There's actually a hundred and slightly over 120, I think, right at the moment, unless someone aged out because you age out when you turn 80 that's a recent thing yeah. um but basically they always have it seems more folks than are constitutionally by the vatican's rules able to vote in a conclave because the max is 120 but the pope keeps appointing and then refilling it beyond that so i honestly don't know what the mechanism will be <laughs> if there's ever a conclave where it says the max is 120 and you've got more than 120 guys that are eligible how do you figure out who gets the short straw um, yeah. there's nothing in the constitution for that. And by definition, when it's relevant, the Pope is dead. Yeah. So <laughs> I guess the camera lingo runs around. Um, but that would, that's going to happen at some point because they keep setting it up and, you know, but, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, anyways, yeah, there's yeah. a, there's quite a tangent. So that'll be interesting. Jeez, I could see some extreme politicking if that ever comes to pass, if you got like, 20 guys who say, no, you can vote. No, you can't vote. No, you can't vote. Oh, okay. That, that'll be yeah. exciting. Old men running at each other with scissors. Yes. And I'm sure probably what would actually happen is they all kind of agree that, okay, well, we're not going to kick anyone out because that's rude. Mm. And eventually two thirds of us are going to pick a Pope because that's how that works. Mm. Um, and when we do, we'll just say, yes, but, you know, we made sure to have those extra few votes. So even if you want to, you know, not count your you know, whichever cardinals you don't like, it's still legit, right? Because that's ultimately the purpose of it, is to not have people arguing over who the Pope is, because <laughs> that's definitely a thing that happened. That, it is. Uh, and it never worked out well. No. <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I, I tell you what, your cardinals show, you're going to have a lot of fun when you come to the Renaissance, aren't you? Oh, yes. It's, uh, and and frankly, I mean, oh, it's, it's such a mess um, at various points. <laughs> um, especially... Here's, here's the difficulty with this show and the reason I didn't do it three years ago when I first started podcasting, because it was my main interest. Oh, okay. But I was like, okay, I really like papal transitions, but 
the least documented portions are the parts that are most interesting and most critical, those early transitions. And let me tell you one thing that is going, mm -hmm. I think, to blow your mind, because you, you seem to have been operating with the same general assumption yeah. that I had until I started looking into it, that, you know, at least in the eyes of the Catholic Church, mm. Pope one, Pope two, Pope three, Pope four, one Bishop of Rome. But the the main document, yeah. the main source, at least for medieval Catholicism, um, and, you know, it's uh, in the last hundred years, it's mm. certainly fallen under a lot of academic scrutiny um, and not fared well. Mm. But the Liber Pontificalis, the uh, Book of Popes, it says in there, and I'm going to find, I'll find the quote, and I'll plug that in here. But uh, basically, it says that Peter ordained Linus and Anacletus and Clement oh. as bishops. Oh. oh, And as bishops of Rome. So yeah. in the Liber's interpretation, because they're a... They're weird about it. They're a Linus first book in terms of the way they describe mm. them. Like they, basically they do it chapter by chapter and they have, all right, here's our entry on Peter. That's where yeah. we get the, you know, the martyred under Nero. That's kind of the, mm. at least the sources for the Libra are the sources for that. But anyways, next chapter is on Linus. Next chapter is on Anacletus. Next chapter is on Clement. So you think, okay, well, they're doing the Linus, yeah. Cletus, um, Clement. And I should mention that Clement, or sorry, Cletus slash Anacletus, that appears to be whether you're in the East or the West for the most part, although some places are confused. The Liber itself actually puts Anacletus right. third and Cletus fifth, but most folks, most okay. scholars agree that they were the same person. It just got muddled. But they have Linus and Cletus slash Anacletus as bishops basically handling the local oh. admin in Rome, and it spells this out oh. in the Liber, um, in their entries that they're in charge of the local affairs. And then they give Clement the universal church admin, presumably because they're aware of first Clement, which we should say that first Clement is basically Clement reaching out to yeah. the church at Corinth, allegedly at their invitation to basically tell them to reinstate the uh, presbyters that they had turfed. So the lever is saying that there was a triumvirate. Hmm. Okay. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's funny because they put the they put they list them in the order of Linus, um, Cletus, hmm. and uh, Clement or Linus Anacletus Clement, um, but the dates they give because they give you know the dates of the emperors and the consuls or whatever. When you look up those dates, yeah. the dates have Clement as the earliest, so the the book itself is muddled. <laughs> so that's how deep yeah. it goes with the first few papal transitions. I would say Clement is definitely the star of the uh, bunch after Peter. Oh, you know, yeah. He's definitely the, the moon to the sun in terms of the papacy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Jesus is there, but this is Catholicism. So we'll talk about <laughs> the papacy. But, yeah. Poor old Anacletus. I've got no idea what he's meant to have done. Uh, he built a little shrine oh, on okay. the tomb of, um, well, not on the tomb, because he built the tomb, basically. He built a little shrine where Peter had been martyred. Although, funnily enough, it this is another one of those things that just pops up in there. It's a, one of those little um, apocryphal books. Um, the Acts of, I want to say the Acts of Peter and Paul, hmm. basically says, after Peter and Paul were martyred, they went and chilled basically outside the city um, for a year and seven months, which is a long time to be chilling when you're in the state of being dead. Yes. Um, and then they were brought back in and placed in this shrine under 
Anacritus. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a weird bit of oddity. But yeah, that's that's what he did. He he built the shrine. That's that weird. Eventually became St. Peter's, allegedly. And that little detail of precisely a year and seven months. It's funny the things that you get very particular on. And for what it's worth, mm-hmm. I do personally think that, yes, I'm willing to buy that St. Peter's bones are in the Vatican. Yeah, um, okay. Gary, I, okay. I gather that you're not. Um, and that's all fair enough. I don't know where Peter's bones are. <laughs> I'll, I'll say that. That's fair. I, I think, I think, can we agree that Peter had bones? Oh, we definitely do that. <laughs> I do occasionally talk with folks that, you know, it's harder to argue against a historical Paul, for example, than a historical Jesus. I do know some yeah. relatively sane otherwise folks that argue against a historical Jesus. Uh, Paul seems to be trickier. I don't know about Peter. No. Uh, yes, I know the mythicist position, which says that Jesus never existed. And I think that's just a silly position. Even if you take the absolutely minimalist position that there was a guy called Jesus, son of Joseph. If you take the life of Brian version. Even if you take the life of Brian, there was a guy called Jesus who was a charismatic teacher, healer and preacher. Well, how can you possibly contest that? That, that's and that's just the minimalist position. And to say, oh, no, impossible. Absolutely impossible. I think that's ridiculous. Well, I mean, you can be ideologically driven on either side of things, and that doesn't mean the answer is always the one that column B. But in this case, yeah, I would say Peter and Jesus and Paul existed. Yeah. Um, although I do, I do like the idea, and now we're starting to hop all over the place, but I do like the idea mm-hmm. that uh, as much as I want to say... Peter did make it to Rome. If he didn't make it in Rome, I am convinced he died halfway through Acts. And I don't know who showed up at the Council of Jerusalem, but just oh. he went to another place in what is that, Acts 12 or something after he's imprisoned? He yeah, escapes yeah, yeah, from yeah. prison, yeah. goes to another place. And at least as far as Acts is concerned, with the exception of that cameo at the Council of Jerusalem, he's never seen again. And I have seen that interpreted basically as he never actually got away from prison. Um, that's just a dream oh. sequence and that was oh. basically euphemism for his martyrdom when he went to another place like basically okay. it's like Jesus appearing after the resurrection when he knocks on the door and they're like oh shoot it's Peter hi and then he disappears yeah I, I mean Acts literally uses the words and he went to another place it's so enigmatic isn't it <laughs> they're really trying to make us not agree on whether he went to Rome I, I suppose so and when you think that Acts is full of place names and details... Oh, yeah. I mean, we know Paul went to Malta. Yeah. What else do we know about Malta during that time? Yeah. Good point. So for Acts to be so enigmatically vague about Peter at that point is really quite fascinating. Now, I hadn't thought of the idea that maybe Peter actually died. And I will say that's definitely not a mainstream position. That's something I came across that got my eyebrows raised. And you know what? I'm willing to occasionally just play with the conspiracy theory, right? Let's do that. It, It seemed fun. Yeah. Now, you could argue that the story of the Council of Jerusalem is misplaced in Acts. And and the author of Acts has simply got his chronology wrong. And the council happened before Peter disappeared. Mm-hmm. That's possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are there are times in the chronology where it really is um, like, oh, really? You, you did that before that? Huh. Yeah. Not sure how that works. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there is the point that the chronology in Acts of Paul's life simply does not fit Paul's own descriptions in his letters. It's way off. They just cannot be reconciled. If you buy Paul's letters, 
you have to say Acts has got it wrong and vice versa. And of course, the position really you are compelled to take is that Paul knows what he's talking about when he's talking about himself. Yeah, I, you do have to have that caution with which are the authentic letters. And I know about half of them true. are ruled out from that. Yep. But uh, it, it seems like scholars aren't too, I'm sure there's some contention, but it seems like in general, they've mostly, at least among themselves, worked out what's Paul and what's, uh, I, would you call it pseudo-Paul? Um, yes, pseudo-Paul, I suppose. I, yeah, I think there's pretty much, except amongst, you know, uh, the dire traditionists, there's, there's agreement that the letters of Timothy and Titus, absolutely not Paul because he's a completely different person in them. There are some letters which are contentious, and everyone thinks they are contentious. Right. right? Uh, and there are the seven, I think, authentic letters, and from what I gather, every scholar thinks, yeah, these are authentic. Mm-hmm. Now, I did have one question that probably should have gone earlier in the conversation. Um, oh, you, oh, you can edit this. You love audio around. I can, I can. Um, one of the arguments that I've seen that mm-hmm. seems to hold a lot of weight but has never been convincing to me mm-hmm. is dating the Gospels based off of the destruction of the temple. Um, because oh, okay. that's a date that we have that's fairly firm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, 70 AD is when it went down and there was and no longer one stone upon another except the Western Wall, but we'll forget that. Um, okay. I it just doesn't seem convincing to me to date the Gospels by the destruction of the temple because how hard would it have been to predict that in a few generations prior? Like you had Rome in the area. They were already stomping all around the Mediterranean world hmm. um, and they were already in conflict with the Jews. And if that really went uh, nuclear, I suppose, um, the temple was going to be in the crosshairs. How hard would that have been to simply guess at and have it be right i mean do you find the destruction of the temple as a convincing argument for later gospels or is there a lot more to the arguments for dating the gospels after 70 or do you buy them as being after 70 no 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 no. the destruction of the temple yeah that's a pretty iffy thing uh although well do you think that the gospels are written in the order of one mark to matthew and luke and john round about the same time yeah yeah, I'll I'll tip. Well, I would probably put John as later than the others, um, and I would have Mark as earlier than uh, Matthew and Luke. But yeah, yeah I, I do yeah. buy the the Q stuff. Oh yeah, I like Q too. I mean, lots of people hate Q, but I I think Q is. I mean, if you follow Occam's Razor, there must have been a Q, yeah. because Matthew and Luke have so much material in common. I know some people say, oh, yeah, Matthew, Luke stole from Matthew. And there are, there are a small number of people who say it's the other way around. But I like to think one of these days we'll actually find a document called Q and yeah. there'll be a huge Greek Q in the front. So we know what it is. <laughs> well, and it would be nice to know for sure. I'm guessing probably we won't, but... No, yes. we won't. But then who could have predicted the Dead Sea Scrolls? No, no. It's fantastic, the things that we, the things that we find. Um, so, you know, there's always that joke of, you know, oh, it's tucked away in a monastery somewhere. <laughs> well, a lot, of, a lot of things were, weren't they? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Codex Sinaiticus was literally a monastery. Yeah. And, I mean, that's, that's the difficulty that I was starting to talk about and then got distracted um, hmm. with doing a show on the Cardinals because the hardest hmm. things to talk about are the earliest days. Yeah. I have names associated with churches in Rome because it's the cardinals are associated with particular churches around the city. Um, All right. I have names and churches 
from as early as 112, which is definitely way earlier than there would have been a thing. Um, But I, you know, I want to talk about them because why not? I might as well. No one else is that would argue that they don't have any historical value for a few hundred years. I am willing to buy that Jerome, our grumpy saint, was possibly a cardinal. Certainly not in the modern sense, but medieval folks like to portray him as such because he was buddy with the Pope of his day, yeah. even though he was over in uh, Bethlehem. Right. Yes. But uh, 